the Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group. I'm Martin Lote, curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, you'll listen in to a conversation between two senior people at the sharp end of business change and transformation, with their permission, of course. Our two guests will chat and question each other as equals, exploring industry topics and stories from their careers. Hopefully, they'll dig up some tasty morsels for us to chew on. In this episode, Mike Cooper, global head of Omnicom's PhD Worldwide Agency Network, spoke to Phil Thomas, the CEO of Essential Events. Phil has run the Cannes Lion Festival for more than 10 years, and he will soon take over as chairman. Listen in and hear why the world-famous Cannes event will be smaller this year, and find out why the big management consultancies now want to win Lions Awards for themselves. We hear how the media agency's best bet for survival is to stay on top of changing technology trends to stay relevant for brands. We also discover if Tim Berners-Lee likes to party and what claiming £400 for car parking on expenses really means. To kick off, Mike asked Phil about his new role. So, some exciting news today about you becoming the chairman of Can Lions. Is that the correct title, chairman of Can Lions? That is the correct title. So you're chairman and chief executive of, for Can Lions? No, not quite. So I'm chief executive of our essential events division, which includes right. Can Lions, but there are lots of others. Yep. And I'm going to become chairman when Terry Savage leaves, leaves that post. What I found when I was running Can, because I was, I was running Can for 10, 11 years or so as the CEO, and I had Terry Savage as a kind of partner. He was yeah. the chairman. And although I had executive responsibility, what I found really useful was to have somebody to bounce ideas off and, and talk about problems to. Yeah. Because Canlines is a really specific kind of business, and there aren't many people who really understand the nuts and bolts of it. So it was very, mm-hmm. very useful, that. And there's a managing director called Jose Papa who runs the business day to day. And my job will be, like Terry's was with me, to advise, talk and, and uh, work together on some of the problems that we've got. So it's just an advisory role, really. And it's, uh, I found it really useful when Terry was doing it for me. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's the plan. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. And what about you, Mike? So you're, you're, you've done well for yourself, haven't you? Global CEO of a major media agency. How did you get to that job? It was an administrative mistake, clearly. Uh, well, I've worked in media since 1984. I started off in a full-service media agency. And I, I, I guess one of the big changes in my career was I, I went out to Asia in 1989 with Saatchi and Saatchi, who I worked for at the time. I think because I was in Asia relatively early in relation to most people, before things had really kind of taken off and before China had become the, you know, the, the media powerhouse that it is today. I suppose I was kind of, you know, just by fortune, fast-tracked, really. Uh, and, I, and I had some great adventures there, like setting up the first media agency and, in fact, the first foreign advertising agency joint venture in China, uh, which was in 1990 or 1991. So I was a sort of, you know, fresh-faced 20-something-year-old sort of going up and wandering around China. And I honestly do believe that, you know, giving young people responsibility is a great idea because you're not afraid of making mistakes. And I think if somebody had given that task to me later on in my career, I'd have been terrified, you know, and I'd probably made loads of really big mistakes, whereas my sort of naivety kind of carried me through on on something like that. So I worked for Saatchi's for a number of years. I worked in television for a couple of years and I started working for Omnicom 21 years ago as the first employee of OMD, believe it or not. And um, 
Then 11 years ago, I came back to the UK to run PhD worldwide. What is changing at Cannes in 2018? Because, you know, we've, we've read that there are going to be a number of changes with the festival this year. So what's, what's going to be different? Well, if we go back to why we're changing something. So uh, we had a nice surprise during the festival last year when Publicis, which is one of our biggest customers, decided to take a year off from the festival. In fact, from all events and all award shows. So that caused a bit of consternation. I think what that did was it allowed some other people to come and make some comments about how they felt the festival needs to be in the future. So we did a huge piece of work. We talked to lots of people in the industry, and that included clients as well as agencies. And a number of things came through. And I think you could basically boil them down to, firstly, it's very, very long. And the problem with it being long is it's really expensive. So can we not boil this down? It wasn't eight days. Can we not do what we want to do within, say, five days? Because it's not just the cost of being there. It's the hotels. It's everything else. So that was the first big thing. So we're doing it in five days instead of eight, which is quite a big deal. The second thing they said was there are lots of, and you'll laugh about this, there's lots of categories to enter into the Lions. So there are too many opportunities to enter, and that's causing us real pain because it gets really expensive. So we've cut the number of categories massively um, by about 130 categories have come out of the festival. So what we hope is it's going to be more streamlined, tighter, harder to win a lion, you know, just some of the things that people wanted us to do. There are certain things we can't do. You know, we're not going to leave Cannes. Um, it's a pricey city. You know, we can't, we don't have that much influence over the city, although we have got deals with restaurants, etc. So we're trying to make it easier and uh, more affordable yeah i mean do, do do you get a lot of um pressure from some of the um agencies just about the, the increasing domination of media of, of, of media companies there because i mean you know companies like google facebook you know this last year the you know the consultancies were very much in evidence i mean you know do they do the creative agencies feel to a certain extent that they're getting kind of like a bit sidelined in Cannes? That yeah, they do. I mean, the history of it is that it was very much a creative... Well, it started off as a production event, actually. It was for production companies. Then the agencies came along. The production companies got really fed up about that. Um, and then, of course, the media platforms, uh, other media owners, media agencies like you guys, and uh, latterly consultancies, etc., so I don't. I think the honest truth is, I don't think the creative agencies are that worried about other people being there. I think what they're worried about is, is this a creative festival or is it a damn media festival? Because if if it's about Facebook selling their inventory to clients, that's not what we thought this festival was about. So what they want is for it to be um, purely about creativity, and that is what we try and do. But I mean, I was going to ask you when it comes to things like the consultancies coming in. And the incredible change that's happening in the holding companies at the moment. I mean, we, we read about it every day. The changing agency model, where media fits into that, where the consultancies fit into that. I mean, can you have a stab at what the hell is going to happen in the next, I don't know, six months or 12 months? I, look, I, I mean, first of all, I do honestly think that there is always going to be a need for people to manage clients communications okay you know there's always going to be you know whether that's a a media agency or something else i mean i i do you know i mean it's private view but i do wonder if the consultancies will look at what we do and just decide that it's too intricate 
and too work intensive and too complicated to be something that they really want to dabble in, uh, quite honestly, as, as they get to know it better. I mean, some of the consultancies have bought a few creative agencies. I mean, none of them have made a really major move, as you know, but they've kind of like dabbled in buying local creative agencies. To my knowledge, nobody's actually bought a media agency as of yet. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I think, you know, as, as a media agency, you know, what we all what we all have to do, you know, PhD included, is that we have to be at the top of our game all the time. And the thing about media is that, you know, changes in media are really driven by technology. Um, you know, to some extent, they're driven by changes in demographics or regulation or whatever. But the big, big, you know, changes, 90% of the changes are driven by changes in technology. And I think increasingly, uh, media agencies, our role is staying on top of technology. You, you have to remember with technology, it's exponential. So, you know, what will be happening in 10 years time will be like the changes of the last 30 years or even the last 50 years because it's constantly accelerating. So I think the really big challenge for agencies and for clients is staying on top of that technology as it relates to media. But isn't there a worry that the, that the consultancies could, if they turn their mind to it, um, provide a bigger platform for the clients because they've got the... They've got the technological capabilities haven't they they've got the transformation capabilities they understand data when you when you're strategizing around your board tables are you thinking about what is it that the consultancies could do that we aren't at this point able to do and how are we going to plug that hole i think they are very good at connecting different areas together i just do think that our area is so specialized uh, and so intricate. And an awful lot of what we do is about innovation and creativity. And it's using that technology we've just been talking about in creative ways. So, you know, we increasingly try and employ people who are creative technologists, you know, who really get the technology, but know how to be creative in that space. I'm not aware of any of the consultancies being in that area that may change going forward that you know that that may you know that may may be different but right now i don't see that you know anybody's moving into that space and demonstrating real kind of like levels of innovation and creativity it's, it's, it's interesting you say that because so, obviously at can lions we have a lot to do with the consultancies because they really want to get involved and i had a meeting with a very large consultancy that shall go nameless and their point of view was, we want to win can lions and we want to understand how to do that. And I said to them, well, look, I'll tell you what everybody's saying about you guys out there in the market is that you cannot attract creative talent because the way you're just the way that you are, you know, culture apart from anything else, you know, you, you can't attract the creative talent. So that's your number one problem. And this guy, he was the worldwide CEO of this particular consultancy. He just started chuckling to himself, effectively laughing. And I said, what are you laughing at? And he said, well, if I could show you now a list of the people who I have stolen from Leo Burnett, from Ogilvy, from all these different agencies, you would be amazed how many people I have managed to attract. I feel to a certain extent with the consultancies, it's a little bit like Google. When Google first started um, you know, getting real scale and it, you know, it was a bit like Close Encounters of the Third Kind where you've got this mothership hovering above us, this enormous sort of sphere above us and it doesn't know whether to um, acquire us 
exterminate us. Uh, you know what what to do with this really, and 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 I think uh, you know over, over time they sort of realise you know this is just something that we have to kind of work with. Because I mean, my my big question about the consultants is I hear what you're saying about the talent. Can you create the environment in which these people will thrive? You know, you know, can you do that? Because that's not particularly easy. And you know, people not creative agencies, but creative agencies are incredibly good at doing that. And you know, I wouldn't take anything away from them. From you know, I mean, some of the work that you see at Can every year is just amazing. You know, there's there's so much incredible. Um, inspirational work that takes place. So, look, it may change going forward, but I, I don't think we're anywhere close to it yet. But you know, as we as we know, these things can change very, very rapidly. I was going to ask you what um what sort of value do you think agencies put agencies and clients really put on awards these days? Do you think that's diminished at all, or do you think it's just as important as it's ever been? I think it depends on the client. So I think all agencies value it, but it depends a little bit on the client. But I think the way to answer that is to say not so much what's the value of an award, but what is the value of creativity? Because a lot of clients have come to the conclusion that the more creative they are, the more value they can build for their businesses. And they've actually done the research. McDonald's did an amazing piece of research where they 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 measured the return on investment of, of lion-winning work versus non-lion-winning work. And the line-winning work was 54% more effective than the non-line-winning work. So it's a question of, is, does creativity, is it likely to improve my effectiveness? Now, most clients strongly believe that it does. Mm. So then the question is, okay, well, how do, we, how do we, firstly, how do we measure it? How do we measure it for any good? And how do we get better? And I think that's where awards come in. So in the first the first point is we can measure it because we can see whether we're winning awards, so whether our peers are thinking we're any good. And we can get better because we can see the other award-winning work. Now, when you lay on top of that, things like talent retention. So particularly on the agency side, people like working for agencies that win Lions. Um, To a certain extent, uh, new business. People have told me many, many times, the more Lions you've got, the more new business you get. It kind of builds up to a picture of a certain amount of value, which we think is still true. Of course, there are clients who don't uh, don't care, but there actually aren't that many because it's quite it's quite it's such a big deal to win it. Even as an individual client, it's a big thing to win, and people like to be told they're good at their job and they like to win on a world stage. So it, I think it's still special. But I mean, I'd ask you. I mean, you're you are my customer, Mike. You are my <laughs> customer. So you tell me. I mean. Do you value the awards? Do you value the lions? I, I value the awards immensely, and I, I think you're right in what you're saying. Some, you know, they matter to some clients more than others. I think to high quality clients, they matter an awful lot. Um, you know, and, and clients, in my experience, get extremely, you know, excited and motivated at the idea of winning awards, and they come along to Cannes and they'll, you know, come up on the stage. Um, I think it's 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 very very important. I mean, they're delighted and they're on, honoured to win. I mean, they are the Oscars of our business. For, for an agency like PhD, they are particularly important because it, it, it authenticates the strategic and, and therefore creative approach that we're taking, taking with a given piece of um, communication. So it's an, it's an incredible kind of like endorsement of, of, of everything coming together and, and working well. Um, I must say, I mean, I was the president of the media jury at Cannes in 2017, as, as you know. And the the one thing that did um, 
sort of my brief to the jury was, you know, what what we're really looking for this year is work that encompasses kind of like data, creativity, uh, and you know, a great strategy. You know, I'm looking for work that combines those three things. So I was slightly disappointed when, you know, I kind of like realized that there, that there were only about two or three cases that really, you know, if and one of them nearly won the Grand Prix, that, that they're all kind of like combined those things together. And, you know, I do, you, know, you were mentioning data in the context of the consultancies earlier on. I, I do sort of worry a little bit that there is this sort of um, rush towards data in our business, which is obviously very, very important but you know some of the kind of like skill sets that we have get slightly left behind in that process um i mean right now i'm told that only 0.5% of data is really kind of like used in any meaningful kind of way and you know data has been likened use of data has been likened to teenage sex in that it's something that everybody talks about everybody thinks everybody else is doing so everybody says they're doing it. But in reality, you know, there's some really big advertisers without naming names that don't really seem to have a cohesive yeah. sort mean, of data data strategy. I mean, I mean, are you feeling that? At, yeah, at we, we, we launched the Creative Data Lions at Cannes about four years ago, I think it was, slightly ahead of the curve, thinking that it was about the right time. And yes, there have been some great winners in the, in that particular lion, but Really, it's a little bit like media. I don't think the media lions, the vast majority of the entries are not what you, as a media professional, would consider top-line media. You know, it's dominated by great ideas, and I think it's the same It's the same with data. So, look, I th- the, the one example at Cannes last year which really stood out for me um, was the Snickers campaign from Australia, where depending on the anger level of the internet, they changed the price of a Snickers bar. You know, it became kind of like cheaper when people were angry because it's that whole strategy of you're not you when you're angry. And I thought it was an absolutely brilliant manifestation. And I thought, okay, maybe they changed the price kind of like twice. But we actually looked into it quite forensically. And actually, they were literally changing the price of the Snickers bar, you know, half a dozen, even a dozen times a day, you know, which was kind of like tracked with all the data depending on what was happening. And I thought it was a you know, a really outstanding piece of work. And I mean, that's what really gets you excited at Cannes when you see something like that. It was a brilliant film, just yeah. brilliantly executed. It's, it's the combination. What I love about some of the winners at Cannes is the combination of the great idea and then the actual execution of it. So there was a great piece from Brazil last year, which was about corruption. And what they did was they managed somehow to, when you search the name of a politician or you were reading a particular article, and it named politicians. If that politician was corrupt, it, you remember the one, you're smiling, it I highlighted do. in purple. So your whole page of your website was highlighted in purple with the ones who are effectively corrupt. And it's not only the idea, which is fantastic, it's actual being able to do the damn thing is, is really remarkable. And that's when I think the magic happens at Cannes, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think particularly so in media, because in media, normally we're we're trying to execute those things kind of like publicly with media owners. And that sometimes can be phenomenally difficult and you need an awful lot of tenacity to do that. I mean, you'll remember a few years ago, we won a couple of golds for a campaign for the Lego movie mm. where we'd reshot um, a, a, a bunch of uh, an, an entire ad break in Lego. So a load of different advertisers had actually paid for their ads to be reshot in Lego. 
and just the logistics of doing that. I, mean, I, I think thought, that... I must admit, Mike, I thought you were going to win the Grand Prix with that. I think we had that conversation. I, I think said, I think I, sh- I think I should have won the Grand Prix. <laughs> <laughs> if I'd have had anything to do with it, you know, these juries they're, they're crazy. But no, I think you were. I mean, it was between you and the actual Grand Prix winner in the end. That, that was. Brilliant. We face a dilemma, you know, as as, as Omnicom as as PhD. There are now so many award ceremonies. I mean, it seems like you know there are ones popping up. There's just so many kind of like different events and so many kind of like awards. You know, I mean, we have no choice but to filter those and just to focus on one or two a, a year, one of which obviously is is can. Um, I mean, how do you feel about that? I mean, do you feel these people are kind of encroaching in your area? Do you feel there's too many awards? Do you get feedback from other agencies that there are far too many awards these days? Yes, and I've thought that for a number of years. There are a large number of awards. And the reason for that is that it is a relatively easy way to turn a buck so there's actually quite a lot of awards that are run uh, pretty poorly by effectively by amateurs and there's been a proliferation over the last few years for various reasons that are probably too detailed to go into now but I do think there are way way too many awards and I think it is absolutely 100% nailed on inevitable that in five years there'll be half as many awards as there are now because the uh, agencies simply do not have the budget to to manage it. Are there agencies that are more interested in awards than others? I mean, are, are there agencies that are not interested in awards? They go through phases. So when publicists decided not to enter, a lot of the creatives were really questioning that decision because, you know, that's what we kind of really want. How, how's that played out? I mean, how's that played out for, for you know, for, for you and for them in terms of... Uh, you know, them not entering awards, has it affected, you know, their ability to retain talent? Well, they've lost a very high profile um, uh, Chicago based creative and maybe a couple of others as well. But I think the um, what they've managed to do is uh, if you look at the awards in the last since can publishers have won loads of awards. You know, we run a, an award in, in Singapore called Spikes, which, you know, very well, well publishers won lots of awards in that. The way they've done it is they've asked their clients to enter on their behalf and the clients have been happy to do that. So that's a kind of way around it. And I think there'll probably be some entries in Cannes as well because um, the clients will want to enter them. But I think as we put, as we draw, draw to a close, I think we're drawing to a close, aren't we? Um, you have been very successful, if you don't mind me saying so. Do you mind me saying so? <laughs> it's very nice of you to say so. Have you made? It doesn't any, always feel like that. Have you, made, <laughs> have you made? What mistake? What, what would? What mistake would you pull out as something that you really wish hadn't happened? Um, I, w- I was working in a full service creative agency, and um, the you know I was just a I was very I was very junior I was just the sort of media executive, and uh, we were doing a a new business pitch, and it was for a coffee brand, and. Um, the chairman of the agency who was supposed to come to the meeting was late. So the account director decided to kick off the meeting with the client. And he, uh, you know, we went through the, the kind of like, you know, it was, it was going kind of fairly averagely, actually. And they got the creative idea. And the creative idea was to have this celebrity endorsement, who I think was Dennis Norton. Do you remember Dennis yes. Norton? <laughs> um, sort of like talk about this coffee brand and sort of say how wonderful he thought it was. 
And for some reason, the client absolutely fell in love with this idea. He just thought it was the most brilliant thing uh, ever. Um, and at this moment, in walked the chairman of the agency, who was slightly worse for wear. And, 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 and he walked in and he heard this at the time. And he just said, uh, you know, the client was saying, you know, do, do you really think you could get Dennis Norton to do this? Would he really do this? And, and, and the chairman said, he's a personal friend of mine. He'll do it. He'll do it for nothing. And ever, you know, client was kind of like absolutely delighted. Thought this was absolutely kind of like brilliant and marvelous, and you know, fantastic. And uh, pretty much sort of said, "Well, if you can do that, you can have the business on the spot. I'll cancel the other pitch meetings that I've got with the other agencies." And the chairman of the agency sort of turned to me as the media assistant and said, Look, "Go, go away and make it happen." <laughs> So he didn't and know Dennis. He didn't Norton, know did Dennis he? Norden at all. But uh, you know, and, and, and to be honest, I, I have to slightly disappoint you because I can't remember what we kind of like did in the end. But we didn't get Dennis Norden. He didn't agree to do it, and you know, at, at any price. And you know, we won the piece of business on the day and lost the same piece of business later on that day. So I, I'm, you know, the, the piece of advice that would come out: be careful where you sit in a meeting <laughs> because if you're in direct line sight of a kind of like a. A chairman, you know, going through that sort of... Uh... Well, there's a whole other podcast about meeting etiquette. I remember an old CEO of mine once said, Dear boy, the finest meetings are the ones you leave with nothing against your name that you have to do. <laughs> that's perfect. That sounds, like, that sounds like 1980s sort of <laughs> advertising agency thinking to me. Yeah. Quite honestly. I'll tell you about my worst, the worst cock-up I ever did. So... Setting the scene, I ran a magazine called FHM. Have you heard of it? It's a men's mm -hmm. magazine. Mm -hmm. dead now, actually. Mm -hmm. There was a journalist on the magazine whose job it was to go and effectively live the life that the readers wished that they could live. And he did all sorts of things. And once I was signing some expenses, and his expenses had car parking, £400. So I called up the editor, and I'd only just got the job as the publisher, and I said, how is this guy spending £400 on car parking? It's absolutely ridiculous. And the editor said, don't you realise, don't, you don't know what car parking is, do you? And I said, no. And he said, well, that's what we put down for cocaine, because we can't put cocaine <laughs> down, can we? We have to put car parking. I just signed the expenses. So rather naively, I signed the expenses. Anyway, a few years later, I told that anecdote at a conference, right, at a a work conference that I thought was just work colleagues, told that anecdote. One of the people listening to the anecdote fell out with the company, got fired, and became aggressive towards the company. And I got a call one day from the company secretary saying, Phil, um, there's, a, there's an AGM of the, of the company coming up soon, and um, we've been told that somebody's going to ask the question of the chairman, do you pay... Do you use your shareholders' money to pay for cocaine for your journalists? And they are citing a story that you told at a conference once. And now you have to tell me whether that's true or not. And what I learned from that moment was um, leave a long time before you start telling those kind of anecdotes. You see, I can tell it now because it really, really doesn't matter. But at the time, bloody hell, it was a serious thing. Okay, so do you have a particularly inspiring moment of your career? I mean, having been at Cannes for all these years, the amazing kind of like people that you've dealt with, you must have some um, amazing anecdotes and experiences under your belt. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's about Cannes. I remember once I was running a, uh, running a business in Australia and uh, we had a, 
a, a, a motocross magazine, you know, a motorbike magazine. And they came to present to the board. And I remember the CEO of the UK parent company was down. And the publisher and editor were presenting their magazine. And they presented it with such passion and such belief. They just loved it. And they said, and we're going to finish the year $47 in profit. And the publishers, the, uh, the, C, the CEO said, I'm really sorry, I think you got that wrong. You mean 47,000 or 470,000? Or You obviously don't mean $47. And they said, no, we mean $47. And they were so proud and so, so passionate that I, I, what I realized then was it's actually not about the size of a business or, or anything like that. It's about, you know, are you doing something you love? And mm. I found that I found that really inspiring. It did not get them down that they only made forty seven dollars. They were proud until they'd been acquired by somebody else. <laughs> How about you? Um, and I, I'm not just saying this because you're here, but I think um, if there's if, you know I've been very lucky. I've had all sorts of great experiences. But if there's one moment, I think introducing Sir Tim Berners Lee at Cannes in front of three thousand people with a live TV feed. Um, He'd never been to Cannes before. You know, he was a delightful man to spend time with um, and to hang out with him for a few days. But I mean, uh, but the thing for me that sort of uh, made it quite powerful, you know, the inventor of the World Wide Web, probably the only person I've ever met who will be fa- still be famous in 300 years' time, or his name will be remembered in 300 years' time or 500 years' time as the man who invented the World Wide Web. That was, that was, that was pretty cool. Yeah. I, I enjoyed that. Yeah, so I remember a... you when you told me that you got him. I was absolutely starstruck. Yeah, I don't well, think you introduced me to him actually in Canada. It was a bit of a yeah, a bit I, of a I, letdown. yeah. I'm sorry about that. We 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 obviously didn't go to the same parties. <laughs> he wasn't a big party goer. We no. discovered <laughs> that's you probably all the parties we were we were kind of having you know cocoa in his room or something. <laughs> well, look, thanks, Mike. Um, Thank you, Phil. Thoroughly enjoyable as ever. Yeah, and um, congratulations again. Uh, Chairman Phil. Thank you very much. See you soon. Bye. Thanks for joining us on The Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast and if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog.